turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we will be focusing our attention this morning on verse, verses 4 through 10. Although that's going to be the focus of the sermon, I would like to read starting in verse 2. Uh, the reason being, uh, in the original Greek, verse 2 to verse 10 makes up one big long sentence from the pen of Paul. Paul had a knack for run-on sentences, and this is one of his biggest ones. Uh, So, in an effort to be faithful to that one big sentence, and for the sake of context, we are going to read from verse 2 to verse 10. So, please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, beginning at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word may write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, how we do thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that you would send your spirit, for we know that we are unable to interpret uh, your word, lest your spirit come and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So give us your spirit now, and uh, we pray through the reading and through the preached word that you would conform us more into the image of your Son. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What is evidence that someone loves us? What is evidence that a family member or, say, a friend or your spouse loves you? Certainly they can utter the words, I love you, but eventually those words are going to have to be backed up by action. Men, you know all too well if you come home on your anniversary or on Valentine's Day and all you have are the words, I love you, with no flowers in your hand or perhaps a plan for the day, that might not be received too well. But when you have the flowers in your hand, you have a plan for dinner that night and you have a card perhaps, those words now have action behind them. It's evidence of love. And I think that's what we have in our passage before us this morning. We have evidence of love. Love in action. As Paul looks out at the good works that the Thessalonians are doing, and he hears the report of the good works that they do in the name of Christ, Paul sees evidence of love. But what's interesting, and perhaps even shocking, is that the love that he sees evidence of is not the love that the Thessalonians have for God, but rather evidence of the love God has for the Thessalonians. Look with me at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, 
that He has chosen you. And then in verse 5, it begins with the word because. Or perhaps in your translation, it has the word for. In other words, in other words what Paul is saying is, I know that God loves you because of the good works you do. It's interesting when we look at that verb loved in verse 4. It indicates a completed action that has taken place in the past that has ongoing ramifications for the present and for the future. A completed action that has taken place in the past. What kind of love is Paul referring to here? Well, he is referring to God's eternal, unchanging love that he has set on the Thessalonians from before the foundation of the world. And this eternal love is the foundation both of the election of the Thessalonians and the good works that they do now in the name of Jesus Christ. It's as though when Paul is looking at the Thessalonians, it's like he's seeing a car while it's running. And he begins to contemplate its engine that makes it run, which is God's eternal love. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, Paul, as he's looking at the good works, he sees streams. And he follows those streams back up to its fountain, back up to its source, which is God's electing love. Brothers and sisters, salvation is truly of the Lord. And the good works that accompany salvation is of the Lord. And I want us, for the remainder of our time, to look at three works of God's salvation in our, in our passage before us. Those works are going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of proclaiming the gospel, and the work of repentance. But first, the work of the Holy Spirit In verse 5, we read that Paul preached his gospel. And it was preached not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Uh, What does Paul mean here, and what are we to make of this? Well, the gospel has come in power and in the Holy Spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 17. Keep your finger in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Luke records... For us in Acts 17, the planting of the church in Thessalonica. And in the first four verses of that chapter, he gives us uh, an indication of what this preaching the gospel looked like from Paul. Read with me verses 1 through 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So here we have a report from Luke in Acts 17 about the planning of the church and what Paul's preaching looked like. Notice the words connected to Paul there and his preaching of the gospel. He explained. He, he reasoned. It's not really all that exciting terminology, is it? It's not a hellfire and brimstone sermon that Paul is giving the Thessalonians here. He reasons and he explains Christ from the Scriptures. Yet, we learn from our passage that there is power 
of the Holy Spirit behind it. Why? Because he is reasoning and explaining the gospel as it is given in the Holy Scriptures. He doesn't give some sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon, but he simply reasons from Scripture that Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Savior. And there is power and the Holy Spirit connected to it. There is power and the Holy Spirit connecting to the proclamation of God's word. And in verse 6, we find that this powerful, spirit-wrought gospel is is received with a spirit-wrought joy in the midst of suffering. It's interesting, isn't it, that the proof for Paul that uh, the Thessalonians have an authentic belief in Christ is that they have joy in suffering, joy in affliction. I wonder, friends, if Paul were to see you today, would he see you joyful in suffering? No doubt we live in turbulent times. Every single day, the reality of persecution for Christians becomes more and more real. And we have to ask ourselves, when persecution comes, when suffering comes, what what would the world see us responding as? Would they see us responding in misery? Heads slumped over, bemoaning God, asking, why, why God? As though this world were the world that we live for? Or would they see us having joy in the Holy Spirit with the knowledge that our true citizenship lies in a kingdom that is everlasting where Christ is? Oh, that the world would see us in the midst of our suffering being joyful in the Holy Spirit with the reality of who Christ is and what He has done for us. The work of God's salvation is found in the joy of Christians, and that is due to the power of God's Spirit working in them. Secondly, we see the work of God's salvation being seen through the proclamation of the Gospel, and we see this in verses 7 through 8. The Thessalonians imitate Paul, and they themselves end up becoming an example by preaching the gospel in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, Macedonia was the province that Thessalonica was the capital city of, and it would consist of really what was northern Greece, and Achaia was what would be, was southern Greece. So really to say that they preached in Macedonia and Achaia is to say that they preached throughout Greece. In other words, they preached to their native people. But they didn't end there. So excited about the gospel. So joyful in the Spirit. Paul tells us that they preached everywhere. They preached throughout the world. They didn't just preach to their native people. They preached to people of all stripes. So excited, so joyful about the gospel. So joyful and excited about the good news, they can't help but proclaim Christ. That's what the gospel is, isn't it? It's good news. Friends, I don't know about you, but I know when I am the recipient of good news, I cannot wait to tell people about it. 
Isn't that true about our everyday lives? When we have good news, we cannot wait to tell people about it. As many of you know, I, was a re- I received good news recently. I passed my ordination exams. That was very good news. And when I received that news, the, th- the first thing I could think of was I can't wait to tell my wife about this. It was as though my joy was incomplete because my wife wasn't involved in that good news. It's also true, too, when we have good news and somebody beats us to the punch, we get a little upset, don't we? If I were to call Leah and say, hey, I passed my exam, she said, yeah, I know, Bob told me. <laughs> I've probably been a little upset with Bob. Thankfully, that didn't happen. We're anxious in everyday life to share good news. Friends, how much more could we be anxious, joyful, and excited to share the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying generation, to dying sinners? We should be anxious to share good news as we share good news in our everyday lives. Notice also this phrase that is used, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was sounding forth from these Thessalonians. Now this phrase is a common phrase that we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And it's often connected to the prophets. You would hear, you often read it in the Old Testament where a prophet says, the word of the Lord came to me. And so he has the word of the Lord on his lips, and then he goes and gives that word of the Lord to the people. Here, that phrase is connected to ordinary Christians who proclaim the gospel. Ordinary Christians who proclaim the gospel have the very word of the Lord on their lips. Beginning of the book of Hebrews, the writer says, In former times, God spoke through the prophets. And in these last days, he speaks through the Son. Brothers and sisters, if you have Christ on your lips, it's not your words that you are speaking. It is God's word. How often do we shy away from sharing the gospel because we're so fearful about what we're going to say? If we have the right words, or if we're going to be rejected. Friends, when you have Christ on your lips, when you preach the gospel, it is not your word you are proclaiming. And it is not you that is being rejected. It is God. And the reverse is true as well. When it is received, when the Spirit works on the hearts of those that hear the gospel, and they receive the gospel, and they become confessors of Christ, it's not due to your eloquence. It's not due to the words we spoke. It is due to God's Word working in concert with the Spirit and convicting sinners of their sin and turning to their only Savior, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is not our Word when we preach it. It is God's Word. What a glorious truth. What a glorious truth. That as New Testament saints, ordinary Christians, we speak the Word of the Lord when we speak and we proclaim Christ. Thirdly, and finally, we see the work of repentance in God's salvation. The work of repentance in God's salvation. What is repentance? 
I think there's a lot of confusion about repentance. I think a lot of people think that repentance is simply feeling sorry about sin. But I think we get a very different picture here in this passage about what true repentance looks like. And I want us to focus on three aspects of repentance that we get from our text this morning. First, repentance involves turning. It involves turning. We see this in verse 9. The Thessalonians were serving idols. And Paul says that they turn from idols to the one true and living God. The Thessalonians were heading in the wrong direction. They were heading in the wrong direction by gazing upon these idols and serving them. And here they turn and now gaze upon the one true and living God. I have a confession. I'm terrible with directions. You'll learn that pretty quick. I often find myself getting lost. And if it weren't for the GPS, I might not be here right now. But that GPS, when I take it out, it reroutes me. It turns me around. It turns me in the right direction. The gospel, working with the Spirit, when it works on people and convicts them, it's like the GPS. It turns them from that grand, long, wide path of lifeless idols and turns them to that narrow path that leads to heaven's gates. Repentance involves turning. Secondly, repentance also involves service. It's not just a mere intellectual turning. It's not merely an intellectual illumination. It's not merely an intellectual acknowledgement that God is true. It involves service. The Thessalonians have turned from serving lifeless idols to now serving the one true living God. This word for serve here means to serve as a bond slave. And it's the most extreme kind of service that we have here. As a bond slave. That's not terminology we really like much, is it? We don't like to think of our commitment to God and to Jesus Christ as a a commitment like a slave to his master. We like to revel in the idea of the gospel and freedom and liberation, right? So the very idea of it being uh, associated with a, a bond slave in this extreme form of service, I think, probably doesn't tickle our ears. But far, far from this being a demanding, harsh thing from God, What we see when we see the words living and true connected to God, we see something much different. Rather than being harsh and demanding, it is an act of God's grace. It is an act of God's love and mercy. Paul says that God is the living and true God. In other words, to serve God is to serve truth. To serve God is to serve life. To turn from the idols of this world is to be a slave to death. And then to turn from them to serve the living and true God is now to be a slave to life itself. God, friends, He commands us to come. Because God is merciful and He knows our limitations as sin. He commands us to come to Him. 
Because he knows without the severe commandment, we would never come. And he says, in me, there is life itself. In me, there is truth itself. Serve me. We are either a slave to death, or we are a slave to life. The one true and living God. Thirdly, repentance involves waiting. Repentance involves waiting. We see this in verse 10. Read verse 10 with me. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What does it mean to wait for the son? Does that mean we sit down and we sort of twiddle our thumbs and we just sort of wait for him to come? What does the word wait mean in Scripture? It's used throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, and here it's used with Paul in reference to waiting for the Son. What does he mean by wait? Well, I want to focus on three aspects of waiting that I think give us the biblical picture of what waiting looks like. First, waiting on the Lord is an active waiting. It is an active waiting The word here for wait implies being ready for one's return. Being ready for one's return. If you have a house guest that's going to be coming and staying with you for a few weeks, what are you going to do? You're not going to go about your business as usual. You're going to get your house in order. You're going to make sure that guest room is prepared for your guests. You're going to make sure that all your plans are in order. You're going to do everything you can. You're going to arrange your life to make sure that that guest is comfortable in your home. So also it is when we wait for the Son who is to come. We arrange our whole life oriented towards the Lordship of Christ. We arrange everything in our life to focus on Him so that we will be prepared for His return. Secondly, waiting involves faithful waiting. It's a faithful waiting. Think of a woman who says to her fiancé or boyfriend who's about to go off to war, I'll wait for you. What does she mean when she says that? Does it mean that she's sitting down on her chair, staring at the wall, looking out the window, waiting for him to drive down the driveway? Maybe there's some of that, but what she means when she says that is, my eyes won't gaze at another man while you're gone. My affections, my heart, my future will belong to you while you're off war. So also, brothers and sisters, as the bride of Christ, our hearts, our affections, our mind, our body, our soul, our eyes, our ears, our future belongs to Christ. Thirdly, Waiting involves a corporate waiting. It's a church-wide waiting. Look with me at the end of verse 10. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not me, not Johnny, not Sally, us. 
Paul is writing to the church. He is writing to the church that Acts 20 says Christ has obtained by his blood. It's a corporate waiting. We wait together as a church body. Going back to that example of the woman waiting for her fiancé off at war, imagine if she had some friends who were in, in a similar situation, who were also waiting for their significant others off at war. Think of how much easier that would be for her. She would have people that would be able to empathize with her. Somebody to, to have, They would have a shoulder to cry on. They'd be able to encourage each other in their waiting, to hold each other accountable to their promises. So also, brothers and sisters, that's what we do as a church as we wait. We encourage one We hold each other accountable. We do as we've just learned in this passage. We draw each other to the gospel. We draw each other. We draw our friends, our family, our our brothers and sisters in the church who are in sin. We drive them to repentance. We We tell them about repentance. And tell them to turn from the idols in their sin to the living God. And we together go out into the nations and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we wait. We wait for that day when the Son will return. He will judge the living and the dead. He will extinguish and kill off all death and sin, and He will bring in that new heavens and new earth. And we will bask in His victorious glory together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You that Your Son will come again, that He will come on the clouds, and He will bring His bride into His abode into that glorious new heavens and new earth where no more sin, no more death will be seen. And we will live in glorified bodies as a corporate body basking in the glory and the victory of the Lamb God. Commit us to a life of waiting for your Son, in whose name we pray now. Amen.